2: What talent he had to make that guitar cry, to make it sing, to make it protest. And nobody has had that kind of ability since.
0: There wasn't anybody like him. Still hasn't been. He was so generous. You know, that's a whole other side of Hendrix. People probably
3: don't know. Finally, for poor old Jimi Hendrix, it was a, a bit of a, you know, uh, a not good way to to play his final large scale performance before he died and so many great guitar players out there from you know
4: the the crowded room that it is yeah jimmy was uh, com-
5: totally unique now it was the first time that i really gotten to hang out with jimmy
6: at all and uh, and i was too shy to talk to him jimmy hendrix is a legendary figure in music we all know that and many of the rock stars that i interview were friends of his and worked with him and rubbed shoulders with the great man. So I thought I'd put together a quick show for you called Hendrix Experienced. And we'll start with a funny story told by an amazing frontman. Mark Farner was the lead dynamo with the incredible Grand Funk Railroad. They were one of the best live bands of their era, explosive live. And Mark spoke to me about his friendship with Jimmy and the hurt he felt when Jimmy passed away. And we start with a fun little story about how we were starstruck the first time they met.
2: We played the Fillmore East in New York City. And when I got off the stage, our manager, Terry Knight, was leading the way up back up to the dressing room. And he never led the way to the dressing room prior to that night. And I, I thought it was kind of funny that he was up in front of us. He usually followed us, so he went up and he opened my dressing room door, and I went, I went to step in there, and here's Jimmy. He had his hat on, you know, he had this shit-eating grin on his face, like, "How you doing, kid?" And I just went up to him, and I, the most intelligent thing I could come up with to say was. You're a great guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I I got to know him after that we had been on several festivals together and we hung out and talked and and we didn't talk music. We just talked life. Yeah. We talked fishing, we talked, you know, uh growing up. And uh, what a great guy he was and what a tragic Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that, that he had to leave the way he did and so early man so early he was just a young guy but what talent he had to make that guitar cry to make it sing to make it talk and make a statement to make it protest man phew, nobody has had that kind of ability since yeah. there's No one could touch him. No one can. He was just, he was a gift, man. He was a gift from God. And now he's back with God.
6: (laughs) Absolutely. And you're saying how devastating it was. Can you remember when you found out about his, his sad passing?
2: Yeah. And I just, I cried because I was just getting to know him real good.
7: And. I just thought, man, that lovely, beautiful soul.
2: Cause we had talked about playing music together. He loved my voice. You know, I said, I, I told him what, it, you know, I learned all my shit just listening to you. And he, uh, he told me I had a wonderful voice we should do something together. And so I don't know what we would have done, but, uh, it was good to think of it, and and sad to think that we no longer had that opportunity. When he left, it was wow, wow! I couldn't even believe it. I I had a hard time, uh, just letting go of him.
6: Next up, we'll hear from someone who auditioned to be Jimmy's drummer, Roger Earl from Foghat. You know, Slow Ride and all that. Anyway, Roger was known by Jimmy's manager Chaz Chandler, and was asked to visit London to try out to be part of his band.
4: We were playing at, uh, it was a lunchtime, there was a club called um, Birdland, just off Piccadilly Circus. And Jimmy came up to a couple of people in line, he came up to me and started talking to me about some of the songs he'd written the night before, and uh, really cool guy. I, I eventually got up to play with him and he started playing, he had a Marshall stack, and he started playing. I really couldn't quite come to terms with his music to start off with and <laughs> um, then he uh, he played uh, to the best of my recollection he played he played like a slow blues and then I could I could do that I could do that uh and he played a, a Chuck Berry song I could do that um then I think he played a few other things and he was very generous with his time I probably played for about 40 minutes I think but um the drummer he picked was the one. Mitch Mitchell was uh, mm. incredible in that band. Um, he played some brilliant stuff. He played some stuff. And I'm going, I remember listening to the album when it first came out myself and uh, my friend Dave, who was a bass player in the first band I was in. We'd sit and listen to Jimmy's first album. i go, did you hear what you just did then? And Dave would say, yeah, what was that?" I said, I don't know. I was talking about the drummer. He said, well, I was talking about the, oh, it was, um, no, Jimmy was, um, he was, uh, you know, I think in the world of, like we're in, when so many people, there's so many great guitar players out there to stand out yeah. from, you know, the the crowded room that it is. Yeah, Jimmy was uh, com- totally unique.
6: Next up, let's hear from Mark Stein from Vanilla Fudge, huge band in the 60s. They took Led Zeppelin across America for their first U.S. tour, and in 1968, they toured with Jimi Hendrix too. Now, during this, Mark and Jimi struck up a really good friendship, and Mark recalls what it was like being out on the road with Jimi.
0: It was like a circus on the road. <laughs> I mean, Hendrix hit the road; he must have had a, it seems like he had a thousand people around him. It was like it was like Bonham and Bailey you know, on the road all the time, all kinds of colors and clothes and guys oh, and women oh, and everybody. Yeah you know just taking advantage of the guy because he was so generous you know that's a whole nother side of hendrix people probably don't know uh but uh it, it was amazing uh here we here we were opening for uh, opening for the greatest uh you know rock star of the time jimmy hendrix experience and i got to know jimmy and Noel Redding and Noel and i became friends and and uh, Mitch Mitchell who i always thought was one of the greatest you know, progressive, you know, rock jazz, rock dramas of, of his era. And uh, it was so cool just being a part of that uh, as well. Correct. You know, I used to hang out with Jimmy after the show. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd have a drink. We'd, we'd, we'd have a pizza. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> a couple of cats from New York, then, you know. But it was really, uh, it was nice. It was really nice. And he loved the fudge. He, he used to call me the fox. He used to stand on the side of the stage. <laughs> and I used to sit on this, uh padded swivel chair and i used to swivel around on a b3 and i'd come and get to the front of the organ right on a downbeat and my hair would just sit down and he said, you look like a fox and i watched him and you look like i'm gonna call you the fox so that was my nickname that's what he gave me you know <laughs> this is what i'm recalling and uh and didn't you yeah. get to hear um electric no lady no or anybody else heard it, was. it as well
6: didn't you get to hear electric ladyland before was, no. everyone else
0: yeah, there was a night in uh, in Phoenix uh, when we were hanging out. Uh, I was I was in a hotel room with Mitch and Noel. Um, it was the wee hours in the morning, and Jimmy comes strolling in with these acetates, which uh, were like copies. It was like a demo before mm-hmm. the actual records were pressed, so you can so you can hear how the how the actual production was going to sound on vinyl. He couldn't play it more than maybe two or three times before it lost generations, but he had a brand new one with him and he was excited to play it. So it was Electric Lady Man. And he had this little, well, we had this record player with the left and right speaker like, hooked up to the side, you know, and he played it and here we are listening to the Gods Made Love and the rest of that record. And I, I was just like, just a, it was just a knockout night hearing that guitar like panning from left to right. I mean, I'm going back 55 years, yeah, maybe, man. you know. <laughs> but uh, I still remember that, like, uh, well, almost like it was yesterday. Wow. Pretty crazy. And I didn't realise the, the importance of that moment until I'm talking to you now and over the last few years uh, to to have experienced that.
6: And someone that got to experience what it was like being in the studio with Jimmy was another good friend of his, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Dave Mason. Dave played on some of his big hits, as he explains, all along the Watchtower. And, and you performed on that song with him, didn't
7: you? Uh, I played acoustic guitar on that and uh, sang on Crosstown Traffic. <coughs> I did some other tracks with him playing sitar and bass, but I, have, I really have no idea what happened to him. <laughs> uh, so, um, but yeah, I spent some good time with him. I mean, he was amazing.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So how did all that come about with All Along the Watchtower then?
7: Uh, we just heard the new uh, Bob Dylan album um, uh, that, was, that was out. Somebody had a copy um, one afternoon, and I guess uh, something struck Jimmy about it. And a few days, I think it was just maybe a few days later, we were. Um, I found myself in the studio with him, him and Mitch, just hmm. the three of us that's cut that track.
6: <laughs> and what sort of experience was that being in the studio with Jimi Hendrix? I mean, it must be incredible. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then the first time you heard the song and you were, as you were recording, it, did you feel the, 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 the quality of the song and how good it was going to be and, and what a hit it was going to be?
7: Well, who knows how big a hit something's going to be, but yes, obviously it was um, Uh, it was something unique and special so something was going to happen with it and Hendrix was just such you know there was there wasn't anybody like him
6: still hasn't been next up let's hear from a crazy festival isle of Wight, 1970 an even bigger crowd than woodstock an incredible lineup of acts to play but people have broken down fences to get in and bands weren't getting paid it all went a bit crazy now on that bill along with Jimi hendrix was jethro tull and the band's lead man the leader the front man singer flautist however you wish to describe him ian anderson he's going to talk us through what happened backstage between the two bands at what turned out to be jimmy's last big scale festival appearance.
3: Looking back on it, it it um you tend to look at look at it you know with a sense of amusement. But I mean some people were getting quite upset, you know. And um I can imagine that um finally for poor old Jimi Hendrix it was a, a bit of a you know uh, a not good way to to play his final large scale performance before he died. And um he uh he, he had to close the show, and he didn't, he didn't want to go on last. And, and I, I definitely didn't want to go on last. And his road crew were trying to set up their equipment before us, um, so to try and get on before us. And, um, and we had rather less equipment and, and uh, managed to get our amps and things on the stage, plugged in, red lights on, and we just went out and did it. You know, So poor old Jimmy had to wait and close the show after all. And um, and by that time, of course, it was about two o'clock in the morning or something when he went on. I mean, it was the audience was just knackered. They'd had enough. They they weren't in the great mood. They just wanted to hear "Hey Joe" and "Purple Haze" and go home. And Jimmy had a new band, and you know he wasn't really that um, enthused about um, you know having to play the old hits. Um, but that that was the crowd pleaser that was expected.
6: Next up, let's hear from a fun guy. This is Blue Oyster Cult drummer Albert Bouchard. He was part of the house band at the Steve Paul scene, and he tells the story of a crazy night and one of his biggest regrets when Jimi Hendrix and Ringo Starr both rocked up to the venue when he was playing at the same time.
5: So this, on this particular night, Ringo... Well, first, Jimi Hendrix comes in. He goes to the far side of the room with, uh, like, uh, a bunch of girls and one guy and uh you know about four girls it's like oh he's got it like that (laughs) and then Ringo comes in with I think just a couple people and he sits at the other side of the club so the house manager Ted Slatis comes up to me and says hey um uh why don't you go over and tell Ringo that it's you know Jimmy is going to jam later, and uh, tell Ringo that it's okay for, for him to play your kit. And I said, oh, okay, it'd be awesome. <laughs> so I went over and I said, Ringo, I, you know, I, I, I've admired you. I think you, you know, I emulate you, and all this other stuff. And uh, and I'd be honored if you play my kit because I know that Jimmy is going to play uh, is going to jam. And Wingo said, no, I, I think I'm going to be a spectator tonight. That's, that's what I want to do. And I said, okay, okay. And, I, you know, and then I looked over and I was like, oh, should I ask him? Oh, that's going to seem so forward and, you know, uh, maybe the next time, you know, it was the first time that I'd really gotten, you know, you know uh, to hang out with Jimmy You know, at all. And uh, and I was too shy to talk to him, to be to be perfectly honest. Now, the next time he came to the uh, to uh, Steve Paul scene, we all talked to him. And and Eric Bloom, who had the van, got to go out in the van and smoke pot with him. (laughs) (laughs) So, Eric got, Eric got closer to Jimmy than I did, yeah, so, uh, but it, I always thought that, you know, he would be around, I mean, that was that was the whole thing, I, you know, I thought, well, I'll, you know, once he knows me better, uh, you know, he'll know, you know, I'm not just some jerk coming and say hey, I want to play drums with you, you know, so, but it never happened, so.
6: Well, I do hope you've enjoyed those clips. Classic rock stars talking about the legend that is Jimi Hendrix. Check out all the rest of those interviews with those guys talking about their careers. You'll find some incredible stories on there. Take a look back through the Vintage Rock Pod channel and you'll find hundreds of them to enjoy. But that's it for me then this week. Next week's big interview show is with another brilliant guest. Let me just tell you that now. You won't be disappointed. So until then, take care.